As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Hello and welcome to The Intelligence from The Economist. I'm your host, Jason Palmer. Every weekday, we provide a fresh perspective on the events shaping your world. Oil majors have been reporting bumper profits again. Part of what's added to their balance sheets is some sell-offs. They're responding to pressure to offload the dirtiest bits of their operations. So who are the buyers? And our annual democracy index is out, and it's not encouraging reading. On the whole, global freedom is under even more pressure than last year. But in the country rankings, there are some bright spots too. First up, though. Today, in Uttar Pradesh, India's biggest state, a complicated month-long vote begins to elect its state legislature. Back in 2016, Donald Trump brought the musician Kid Rock to his election rallies. The party of Narendra Modi, India's prime minister, has invoked a higher power, Lord Ram, for Hindus the embodiment of virtue. The campaign has been intense, with rallies and campaign songs on social media. Mr. Modi's Bhartiya Jinta Party, or BJP, has been campaigning much as the country has been ruled for eight years, on Hindutva, an aggressive form of Hindu nationalism. The rhetoric emphasizes Hindu identity, but also, in Uttar Pradesh, all that the party has delivered infrastructure spending, food handouts, and a crackdown on crime. For Mr. Modi to win another term in 2024, his party has to win big in this state election over the next month. If Uttar Pradesh were a country, it would be the world's fifth biggest in in population. It's somewhere between Pakistan and Indonesia. It's got one in every six people in India. Max Rodenbeck is The Economist's South Asia bureau chief. It's so big that voting has to be done in seven phases in different geographic slices of the state over a whole month. And what is it that makes this election so important? Well, UP, as people call it, packs a very big political punch. I mean, one in six of India's people, that means, you know, one in six of members of parliament, one in six in terms of influence. So despite the fact that it's a very poor state, it has a lot of sort of outsized political influence. Its members of parliament play a kingmaking role. And it's a very closely watched poll, not just because it's India's most populous state, but because of, of when it happens. So back in 2017, which was the last state election in UP, it was won by the BJP and Prime Minister Modi. But this time, the vote is particularly crucial for the Prime Minister, both because he needs the votes from UP in order to win a third term in national elections, which are coming up in 2024, but also because, perhaps more importantly, you know, after eight years in power and after trying to push a very strong Hindu nationalist agenda, whether he's still just as popular or waning in popularity or losing popularity completely will be a big signal of whether his whole Hindutva project is actually still working. And what's the, the political scene? What's the political makeup of, of UP? It's a very complicated state. It's divided particularly by caste, but also by religion, 
In terms of caste, it has an overly large number of Dalits, which is what used to be called untouchables, but it also has a very powerful number of upper caste groups. And its politics has been you know, revolved very largely around caste identity politics, political parties that re represent particular castes and their interests. And religion is also important. It has a very large Muslim minority, nearly 20%. And we've been out speaking to voters across the state. And one place was a village called Ramana. It's a mostly farming village near to Banaras, the Hindu holy city. In that particular village, they voted for the BGP last time in 2017. Most of them say they'll, they'll do it again. And particularly, they seemed pleased with Uh, lots of work in development, road building and so on, and also in the, the number of government handouts, free food, free other things that have been you know, provided by various government programs, which have seemed to have actually reached this particular village. So is that something of a consensus view in, in your reporting that uh, basically the, the freebies have done their job and people are satisfied? Well, it's certainly the case that groups in this region have been pleased with the spending. But in other villages, that's not so much the case. I mean, it's an incredibly diverse place. And you find even within a small geography, very radically different opinions. I mean, in another village just four kilometers away from Ramana, we spoke to largely upper caste people who are also pretty happy about what they perceive, particularly the thing that they go on about is what they describe as falling crime rates. Crime is the thing that they seem to be most concerned with. And it matters because UP has a reputation for being one of India's sort of gangster lands. Uh, in the past, some spectacular crimes have gone on there. And although crime has gone down, an outsized number of those involved in police action have been from the, the state's minority populations, particularly Muslims, also Dalits. And we've talked a lot on the show about Narendra Modi's Hindu nationalist program, and indeed that you say that this election is essentially a vote on that. How, how is that figuring into the campaigning, into the election itself? Well, the BJP has often used polarizing sectarian rhetoric as a way of uniting the Hindu vote, you know, to point the finger at somebody else. And it's doing that again in this election. At nearly every rally across the state, we've seen BJP leaders sort of issue kind of subtle or not so subtle dog whistles that seem aimed at stoking, you know, sectarian feeling. And they've, you know, repeatedly insinuated that under previous governments, before the BJP came to power, It was only Muslims who got government handouts, which is just not true. And also they've insinuated that, uh, you know, Muslim mafiosi made streets unsafe. So is this ultimately an election that's going to be decided along those religious nationalist lines? No, it's not at all that straightforward. You know, a, a lot of UP, perhaps half the population is made up of groups that are known as, in, in Indian sort of official parlance, as other backwards castes, which means they're not high caste and they're not from the lowest castes. And, you know, parties have tended to form and movements have grown around particular slices of this other backward caste group. So there's a very fragmented political scene and different communities are coming together in unexpected ways. UP has been a very, very hard place to predict the outcomes. And, you know, we've spoken to community leaders of one of these groups. And Although they're poor, they like the BJP, they voted for them last time. They say that they're very, very bothered now by the fact that as a result of Hindutva politics, there's no longer any trading allowed in cattle. So as a result, there are tens of hundreds, perhaps millions of cows running stray all over the state, trampling their crops. So they're going to vote against the government because they're angry about this stray cow problem. But given that fragmentation among the populace, what about in, in the politics? What does the political opposition look like? It's quite complicated. There are three main challenging parties. 
Uh, one is the Congress Party, which for many, many decades ruled India, but it's kind of fading out in UP in particular due to the advance of these caste-related parties. And then there are two parties that started out from caste politics. One is called the Samajwadi Party, and the other is known as the BSP. But they attempted to form a kind of coalition between them, and they've done that in the past, but this time failed to. So as a result, Modi's party, the BJP, the ruling party, is playing in a field against a lot of smaller parties, which gives it a big, big advantage. So the politics is as, as fragmented then as the demographics. I mean, given all of that, how do you see this playing out? Is this just another sale to a win for, for Modi and the BJP? Well, not exactly. Modi has all the advantages. He's one of India's most popular prime ministers. And the UP is at the very core of his Hindi language speaking and religiously conservative support base. But there have been headwinds mounting against Modi and his BJP across India, including in UP, you know, due to COVID, due to things like inflation, rising inequality, youth unemployment. All these things stare in the face of the government's promises of development for all. Uh, there have also been a lot of policy blunders by Modi's government, such as a failed attempt to reform farming laws that alienated big chunks of voters and caused a lot of anger. So this kind of disaffection has seeped deep into UP, but it hasn't been tested yet. So this election is going to be a test of that. I mean, it's, it'll be crucial because it's a test not only of whether the BJP can hold this state and win national power in 2024, but it's a test of the whole Hindutva project. Max, thanks very much for your time. Thank you, Jason. As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity. Get it! Shut it down! What do we want? Climate justice! When do we want it? Climate activists and activist investors just keep putting pressure on fossil fuel companies to stop opening new projects and to close down or sell off the dirtiest existing ones. So oil majors are responding. They've got slick new marketing as energy rather than oil companies, and they make conspicuous investments in renewables. And they're selling off those dirtier assets. But that doesn't mean that those oil and gas operations just go away. With oil prices high and fairly steadily rising, they're still good bets for a willing buyer. The six biggest oil companies in the West have shed nearly $44 billion worth of mostly fossil fuel assets since 2018. Mathieu Favas is a finance correspondent at The Economist. And that's not over because they're eyeing another set of disposals worth around $128 billion in the coming years. And, you know, if you look at specific companies, ExxonMobil, which is the biggest one, has said recently that it will divest its Canadian shale business. And Shell has put its remaining Nigerian oil fields on the block. So this is quite a, a big quantum of assets that is coming on sale. And much of the time, you know, these assets are not really being shut down. They're typically operated by others that are happy to buy them. Who are the others who want to pick these assets up? Many of them are private equity funds, so uh, investment funds that are not listed on the stock market. And in just the past two years, these private equity firms have bought nearly $60 billion worth of uh, coal, oil and gas assets. Uh, and that's a third more than they invested in renewables. And that includes firms like Blackstone, Carlyle, KKR, which are very big names in the, uh, the private equity industry. They've carved out interest in, in big oil fields, 
uh, coal-fired power plants, uh, uh, gas grids. Uh, but there's a lot of other smaller deals that get far less publicity. Well, I don't imagine that many want a lot of publicity about this stuff. These are unfashionable assets to have in the current climate, if I can use that word. Uh, why Why are private equity firms interested in this stuff? Private equity firms have, I guess, ever since the early 2000, been quite interested in, in oil and gas assets because the price of oil had been rising between 2000 and 2015. And that has led many funds to uh, invest in what we call upstream activities uh, related to exploration and production, uh, fracking wells, for example, but, but not only offshore fields as well. And they were not shy about uh, the fact that they were marketing those funds to investors. But then what happened is uh, Saudi Arabia and its allies of the OPEC cartel of producing countries, they decided to flood the market uh, because they wanted to crush the shale producers of America and the price of oil collapsed. And the returns on those strategies basically collapsed as well. But the thing is, no, uh, you know, demand for oil is increasing again. Uh, prices are on the rise again. Uh, and so the potential gains on upstream assets are pretty vast. You know, Shell, so one of the, the big uh, oil majors, predicts that the internal rate of return on investment in upstream assets, which is a way to measure the, the performance of them, is likely to reach uh, or, or to be up there about uh, 20%, which is about double what you, you would expect from a, a renewable project at the moment. And how does that sit with the investors, the people who have money with these equity funds? Are they drawn in by those uh, rates of return without respect to, to where that money is coming from? Or do they, do they know where that money is coming from? Well, that's a very good question because this sort of uh, splurge on hydrocarbon assets sits pretty uncomfortably with the pledges that many pension funds, uh, universities, insurers, you know, those long-term investors that want to be seen as uh, investing in a sustainable way, they've made many pledges to not invest in fossil fuels. Uh, and yet, they are sometimes the same investors in private equity funds. Uh, private equity funds typically raise money from pension funds and insurers as well. So there's a bit of hypocrisy there, uh, definitely. But I suppose uh, part of it is maybe a lack of awareness that some of these funds do that because they do it in a less blatant way. Uh, but mostly, I suspect, it's because the, the returns are, are so juicy that they're pretty hard to leave on the table. And we did a bit of research, actually, to take a look at exactly how big the phenomenon is. We looked at eight private equity firms that have closed uh, fossil fuel deals in the past two years. And uh, investors in some of the latest energy-flavored funds included, we found, 53 pension funds, 23 universities, and 32 foundations. And that's, that's just a fraction, probably, of how many there are, because these are typically the ones that disclose investments in, in private equity funds. So are the private equity firms quite open about what they're doing here? The investors in private equity funds, they're kept in the loop on what the funds are doing, because it's not the entire fund investing in fossil assets. It's perhaps less of a stigma because these private equity firms uh, manage renewable funds as well. Uh, it looks a bit greener than it used to, you know, back in the, the 2000s or, or 2010s. And private equity managers have been canny in changing their strategies. Many are no longer marketing specific energy funds. Typically, instead, they've launched renewable funds. And upstream assets are being lumped with others into funds that are labeled you no know, growth. And these typically cover a range of industries. But perhaps the biggest shift has been a, a move away from upstream assets to focus on midstream assets, which uh, chiefly are pipelines. It's also possibly oil storage tanks uh, and the likes. And these are very attractive because they're a bit more like infrastructure. So big clients will pay you a fixed fee whenever they need to use the pipeline. So it's much less volatile, it's much safer than investing in, a, in, a, in an exploration of production assets. 
But still, those assets go on to be as environmentally troubling as they would have been for the oil majors that are selling them off. So the argument that PE firms are making is that they can be trusted to manage those assets well, uh, essentially that they can uh, decarbonize them. But it's really hard to know whether this argument holds water because there's actually a record amount of cash uh, raised by PE firms that is looking for investment targets. And that means that they need to seal deals much faster uh, and uh, perhaps they spend less time crafting this plan that they're saying they care about. But what seems transparently clear, by, by contrast, is that there is still demand for these dirty assets, that people are still happy to buy them. To some degree, people still very happy to invest in them. There, there's the incentives for everyone to, to greenify are, well, muddied. Yeah, that, that's right. Uh, and even if private equity firms you know, decide that perhaps they need to slow down these investments a bit, you have a, perhaps a third category of investors, which are the state-owned firms and the sovereign funds, uh, typically based in countries that actually produce oil themselves. These are, are really completely opaque. And they're also quite interested in buying assets from the majors because they're not accountable to, to shareholders uh, like listed firms do. Uh, they're not based in democratic countries. Uh, so they, they don't really have a qualm in, in buying those assets and reaping your profits. If I can perhaps borrow a, a metaphor from physics, you know, rather than like the, the first law of thermodynamics, which states that energy cannot be created or, or destroyed uh, in an isolated system, it can just be transferred from one place to another. Well, the same seems to apply to the energy industry itself. Thanks very much for joining us, Matthew. It's my pleasure, Jason. Once again, it's been a troubling year for democracy and the freedoms that come with it. From regime change in Afghanistan... What we're showing you, uh, our viewers now, uh, Rob, is uh, images of the Afghan flag being taken down. ...to the suppression of Hong Kong's media. Apple Daily, that's a prominent pro-democracy newspaper in Hong Kong, is shutting down. In West Africa, it's been coup after coup. And all over the world, all kinds of heavy-handed pandemic measures are still in place. But let's put some numbers to it. Every year, our sister company, The Economist Intelligence Unit, surveys global democracy and issues a ranking of countries. Its latest report bears out lots of what we've been talking about since the last one. According to our measure of democracy, less than half the world, about 45% world population, now lives in a democracy of some sort. That's either a full democracy or a flawed democracy. Joan Hoey is the editor of The Economist Intelligence Unit's Democracy Index. That's a significant decline from 2020, when that was around 49%. So so what is it that's at work here? What, what is driving democracy down? Well, there were many forces at play. The pandemic has continued to have a negative impact on the quality of democracy in every region of the world. At the end of 2020, we pointed to the risk that this unprecedented peacetime adoption of emergency powers the withdrawal of civil liberties in response to the pandemic could persist through 2021. Now, at the end of 2021 and the beginning of 22, it's clear that this state of affairs has become normalised. And I think this is quite a worrying development for the future of democracy. And what about a kind of bi-region view? Are there particular winners and losers thinking regionally around the world? So Latin America's of all the regions covered by the index, suffered the biggest year-on-year -year decline in its average regional score. And it's also the case that this was the biggest decline 
of any region ever in the lifetime of the democracy index. A big part of the explanation for that is growing public dissatisfaction with government's handling of the pandemic has really amplified a pre-pandemic trend in the region of growing popular scepticism about government's ability to deliver, to address the region's problems. The result of that is growing public support for non-democratic alternatives. The perfect example of this in the region is Mr. Bolsonaro in Brazil, who has consistently downplayed the danger of COVID-19 and told his citizens to stop whining and crying. But what about uh, any regions or, or countries that have bucked the trend? Give me the good news here. Did any region or country get more democratic? Sure. Even if the overall trend is negative, there's always some good news. So about 47 countries actually improved their scores in 2021 compared with the previous years. And some of the most notable improvers were, let's say, to look around a few regions, Indonesia, in Asia, Zambia, in sub-Saharan Africa, uh, Uruguay in Latin America, and a few in Eastern Europe, uh, Moldova, Montenegro, and North Macedonia. Some of these improvements are from a very low base. So, for example, Qatar improved its score. The Democratic Republic of Congo has a score of about 1.1 out of 10 in the index. So when you're that low, uh, you could say that the only way to go is up. What about the very top and the very bottom of, of the list, the, the best and the worst of, of democracy? Yeah, well, this year, actually, after many, many years when North Korea has been consistently bottom of the rankings in 167th place, we've actually had a change at the bottom of the rankings this year. So Afghanistan is now bottom of the index and it's been joined down there, displacing North Korea by Myanmar, which uh, following the, the military coup earlier in the year and this major crackdown on political opposition. At the top, not so much change. So we see the Nordics always very consistently good performers in the democracy index. Norway is number one again. In general, if we look at Western Europe, West European countries dominate in the full democracy category, they account for 12 out of the 21 full democracies. Overall, though, the, the picture is of democracy sliding still, as, as you told us last year. What, what's your view for democracy in 2022? I think one positive thing that we can all look forward to is a possible relaxation of COVID-19 restrictions. And that should bring about some return of civil liberties the other thing to watch in 2022 is China and what happens in China. One notable development uh, during the course of the pandemic is the increasing confidence with which China's rulers have proclaimed the superiority of their own governance model over that of Western democracies. How much success China will have will depend a great deal on the ability of the West to revitalize its own democratic model. Joan, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's all for this episode of The Intelligence. If you like us, leave us a rating and a review. And you can subscribe to The Economist at economist.com slash intelligence offer. The link is in the show notes. See you back here tomorrow.
As our world becomes increasingly interconnected, so do the risks we face. But with the right context, we can uncover deeper meaning. Moody's decodes risk so that you can act with confidence. Visit moody's.com to see how your organization can decode risk and unlock opportunity.